Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Gabriel Poli. Gabriel published in 2022 a book published by I.B. Torres, Palestine in the Victorian Age, Colonial Encounters in the Holy Land. We know that uh, narratives of Palestine, Israel, modern history, certainly up to the beginning of the 21st century, often began with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, suggesting that that was the moment where the modernity uh, was brought by the British at the end of World War I. These kind of narratives are superseded by more contemporary material that suggests that, in fact, modernity was brought about uh, the Ottomans through the various process of reforms internal to the Ottoman Empire. However, this particular work argues that the struggle over Palestine has its roots deep in the 19th century, when Victorians first cast the Holy Land as an area to be first possessed by empire and then colonized by settlers. Let me give you some biographic information about Gabriel. So Gabriel Poli completed his PhD in Palestinian Studies in the European Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter in 2020. And um, he previously studied uh, history of art and literature at the University of East Anglia, and he also studied Arabic at Birzeit University in Palestine. Now, he currently works in London in the translation and international development sector. And I also want to add that Gabriel Poli won in 2021 the Ibrahim Dakak Award for Outstanding Essay on Jerusalem, awarded by the Jerusalem Quarterly. His essay was entitled Jerusalem Through Evangelical Eyes, 19th Century Western Encounters with Palestinian Christianity, which was published um, in the summer issue of the Jerusalem Quarterly, number 86. Before we delve into the book, first thing first, Gabriel, welcome. Thank you so much, Roberto. Thank you for having me. Now, I really want to start with something personal. And so I would like to ask you if you can tell us something about your background and, more importantly, about the origins of your book. Uh, Okay, well, my academic background, um, I'll say, uh, I began by studying uh, English literature and history of art. So I think I always came towards historical subjects from more of a kind of literary and cultural perspective. Um, I then had the, you know, very great privilege of um, being able to spend some time in Palestine in 2013 and again in 2014 to 15. Uh, living in the West Bank and, uh, you know, had a wonderful time, really saw the situation there um, from a personal perspective, made many good friends and also 
um, got something of a feeling of of the incredible history and the multi levels of history that run throughout the place and have produced the situation there today. Um, so that really kind of set me on a path of wanting to pursue Palestine studies as a discipline um, from my own um, own perspective and my own interests. Um, I then embarked on my PhD study at the University of Exeter in twenty six in the uh, European Centre for Palestine Studies, um, where it was really, you know, my very good fortune again to have Professor Ilan Pape as my supervisor. Um, and he was the one who introduced me to this um, huge body of literature, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, but the huge body of literature that was produced in the 19th century by British travellers who came to Palestine, um, which falls within the category of Orientalist literature in general, but has some specific uh, aspects to it. And he told me that, you know, it was really very understudied and uh, that not much attention had been paid uh, to this um, body of literature, which is, you know, very biased and uh, very limited in many ways, but also quite an incredible source um, for social attitudes towards Palestine that existed in Europe. Um, So that's how I came to the subject. And uh, now, six years after starting, uh, I'm very happy that my book has uh, been bequeathed to the world. And congratulations for the book indeed. Thank Uh, you. So the, the argument and your argument is essentially that the colonization of Palestine has its roots in Western evangelicals mm-hmm. who basically start visiting Palestine, as you mentioned, in the uh, early mid 19th century. So I was wondering yes. if you can tell us a little bit more about this. And as you already mentioned, the state of the literature and above all the sources that you use for your book. Yes. Um, so to take your first point um, and what you said about my argument and how I, I discuss how um, Zionism, um, which, you know, I argue is a form of settler colonialism, um, in Palestine uh, was was hugely influenced by these travellers and uh, these non non Jewish evangelical Christian uh, mainly from Britain. I also talk about some American travellers as well um, who were, who were coming to Palestine decades before uh, what we think of as you know the great kind of um, you know signposts of of Zionism. So, you know, long before the first Aliyah of the 1880s, when, uh, which is commonly taken as the date when um, Jews began to arrive in Palestine with a, a different intention to to that of Jewish communities that already existed there, but began to form these settlements. A decade before um, the, the foundation of the Zionist movement as an organized political force, decades before Theodore Herzl and long before the Balfour Declaration, these ideas were already being advocated and laid out by non-Jewish, British, evangelical Christian travellers. Um, so I, I think, you know, there there is an, uh, an issue that some might raise with my argument, um, which is to say, uh, you know, Zionism is, is a force from, from your, predominantly European Jewish communities. You know, it arose there and... Um, 
you know, it, it has a life of its own and it wasn't something that was um, defined or predestined or whatever by, by these uh, Victorians. Um, and that is, I don't think that my book is mutually exclusive with that argument. But when I was reading this body of literature, when I was looking at the evidence, I found a huge number of parallels, very close parallels. Uh, in some cases, we can actually point definitively to say, yes, this this particular individual Victorian traveller, you know, whether they were um, a, a, a tourist or an artist or associated with the um, Palestine Exploration Fund, for example, did actually have concrete links to the Zionist movement later on. So in some cases, we can, you know, definitively pinpoint. Um, in in other um, eventualities, it's a case of saying... Um, these attitudes were, were so widespread in Victorian society that when the Zionist movement began to arise slightly later, the ground was already prepared for British policymakers, middle and upper classes, to lend their support to Zionism, to settler colonization in the aftermath of uh, the British occupation of Palestine uh, in, during the First World War. Um, so that that is uh, my argument in a nutshell, I think. Um, to address your point about, you know, who were these travellers um, and, and what, what kind of background did they come from? What was their ideology? Um, well, today we think of Christian Zionism and evangelical Protestantism more generally as an American phenomenon. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was very much uh, something that had its origins in Britain. Uh, Britain underwent the evangelical revival, which is um, a kind of explosion of a Puritan brand of Protestantism that occurred in at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century. Um, and and with that came a new way of interpreting the Bible, uh, new ways of trying to read kind of um, concrete issues into biblical prophecies and, and relate the Bible very specifically to, to the world around them, the world that existed. Um, and so this turned attentions towards Palestine uh, among evangelical Christians to a huge extent um, in from, from about the 1830s and 40s onwards. Um, and, you know, this had many cultural manifestations. Uh, there was Lord Shaftesbury, who uh, was a, an evangelical Christian who I discuss in my book, uh, in parts of my book, who um, devised this uh, saying, the forerunner of the saying, a land without a people for a people without a land. There was uh, Daniel Deronda by George Eliot, um, this this novel with, with very kind of clear Zionist themes. There were artworks and other novels and um, even kind of religious um, songs and images and so on, uh, which all surrounded Palestine um, uh, in Britain, this idea of Palestine. So it, it was a, a huge issue in Victorian Britain, a huge part of the Victorian consciousness, the Holy Land, uh, the state, the present state of the Holy Land and the future of the Holy Land, i.e., the return of the Jewish people, sometimes uh, accompanied by belief in their conversion to Christianity, to Protestant Christianity. So that, that was a huge part of Victorian culture. And 
this obsession really set in motion uh, a vast wave of travel um, of again evangelicals um, very much evangelicals and it was you know much much less observed among catholics for example um, of people wanting to go to palestine um, along with other parts of the eastern mediterranean obviously at this time there were not the hard borders that we know today but uh, you know people traveling to see palestine to see egypt to see uh, jordan which at the time was was often known as eastern palestine um, to travel around there to travel around biblical sites um, and when they came back to Britain, these many thousands of travellers used to record their experiences in, in these travelogue books, which is a huge genre spanning thousands and thousands of works um, produced in Britain and North America in particular. Um, so that's the source material I was looking at. I also, um, as I got deeper into my research, I also began to consider other forms of textual uh, resources, uh, particularly newspapers I found were, were really fascinating um, source and in indeed in the in the pandemic when archives and things were inaccessible uh, the fact that newspapers were online and digitized was was incredibly useful and i could find out a huge degree of detail about what was going on in palestine to my surprise uh, in these newspaper records um, also documents such as kind of guidebooks and other paraphernalia around around travel around the phenomenon of travel um and again, you know, I repeat that it's really a body of material that one cannot take seriously for, uh, you know, historical research. With, with a few exceptions, I'll say, with a few exceptions. But, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly blinkered and biased in its nature. But it does really illustrate the, the social attitudes, the beliefs and um, the kind of uh, yeah, attitudes which were developing around Palestine in this period that, that had such a huge impact some decades later. I want to thank you for this very far off, uh, answer because in general, th there is this sense that not much was going on in Palestine around that time, mm -hmm. not just in terms of those that don't see... Uh, do not appreciate the Ottoman work done in Palestine, but also from a Western perspective, it, it seems, you know, it's a yeah. forgotten land, but actually there is some form of activity and these evangelicals are at the forefront, which brings me to the next question. So in, in chapter two, then you start talking about uh, the key figure of Edward Robinson. And so I was wondering if you can mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, Robinson and perhaps if you can also add, you know, some nuances about how, uh, you know, Palestinians reacted to his presence and how they saw Robinson and vice versa, how Robinson uh, saw the local Palestinians. Uh, yes, uh, so Edward Robinson was uh, an American traveller. He uh, he had British roots, uh, English roots. His ancestors um, were, you know, Puritan settlers uh, in America in the um, 
I think they went over in the 17th century. Um, so I give a provide a biography of him in my book. Uh, he went through you know various sort of seminaries in in the northeastern states uh, in New England um, and became um, a very kind of talented figure in language acquisition in particular, learning ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew and some Arabic. Um, uh, in the 1820s and 30s. Um, and then in, in towards the end of the 1830s, uh, he began to be kind of consumed with this desire to go to Palestine. Um, this was just at the beginning of this wave of travel that I mentioned. And this was also under the uh, brief Egyptian occupation of Palestine um, that was, was during the 1830s, which was a period of um, increasing European influence in the Eastern Mediterranean, not only Palestine, uh, but also, you know, great, greater Syria was under the occupation of um, the Egyptian uh, forces of Muhammad Ali Pasha. And uh, so it was becoming somewhat um, easier for travelers to get there and uh, to travel around and so on. So, um, yeah, Robinson uh, visits Palestine during the 1830s for the first time. And he went with uh, a companion of his called Eli Smith, who was a missionary who'd been based in Beirut uh, for, I think, 14 years at the time that Robinson arrived. And Smith had an excellent command of Arabic, which actually set uh, Robinson and Smith apart from other travelers at the time, because most more casual travelers really had very little if any Arabic and they weren't able to communicate with Palestinians or uh, really gain anything more than a surface impression at the time. Um, so Robinson and Smith uh, traveled around Palestine for the first time in 1838 and they really traveled uh, with a hu kind of huge eye for detail um, and they went between various villages and so on that they identified with with biblical locations, which was their prime interest in Palestine, of course, uh, seeing how the map of the Bible could be transposed onto the map of the Palestine which existed. Um, they travelled around, um, and the, unlike many other travellers, they formed these quite strong bonds with local Palestinians, which was, you know, fascinating to me. Um, and uh, in Robinson's works, I read uh, there's actually many kind of almost heartwarming anecdotes of of conversations that he had with local Palestinians and uh, examples of Palestinian hospitality and something that I found particularly interesting was records of all the crops and the agricultural production and so on that was uh, was was in each area of Palestine which Robinson describes quite faithfully and I thought this was you know a wonderful um uh, kind of um, refutation of, of this idea which uh, pro-Israel scholars have tried to propagate of Palestine before Zionist colonization as being a barren land um, because Robinson really does kind of describe all the all the production of the region. 
Um, so that was the first time Robinson went to Palestine. He then actually returned in 1852 um, and, uh, you know, produced more writings on, on Palestine. And, yeah, my, my second chapter of the book, I decided to, to really focus on Robinson because more than any other individual, I think that he... Uh, really sparked this wave of travel and, and the desire of other evangelicals to see the Holy Land. And his books were bestsellers at the time. Uh, they were not without controversy because he set out to bring a kind of scientific, almost uh, Darwinian eye to, to the Holy Land by, you know, confirming certain biblical sites and uh, challenging others. I, the most the most well-known one is that he argued that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was, was in an incorrect location because according to biblical description, uh, the crucifixion of Christ would have had to have happened outside the walls of Jerusalem, according to Robinson's interpretation. Um, so that that's an example of the kind of... Um, scientific or semi or pseudo-scientific attitude that he brought to Palestine, which was really something new and something that set these new travellers um, quite apart from, you know, the pilgrims, from, uh, you know, various uh, non, non-Protestant and non-Western um, denominations who'd come to Palestine for millennia before, before Robinson. So this was a new form of travel. Um, and although I think Robinson's interests were mainly scholarly rather than, than having a political undertone, um, those who followed him definitely uh, had, had more of a political purpose, and he set their journeys in motion. I want to talk about a few things that you just mentioned later. But I, I'm trying to follow um, sort of the structure of the book. And I want to pick up on a few things that you talked ab- about, uh, uh, for instance, uh, the Holy Sepulchre. So mm-hmm. chapter, chapter three is very much about Jerusalem. And uh, I was wondering, how did Victorians see Jerusalem in the first place? So what did the city represent for them? And I also want to know, something more about how these British Protestants are related to the uh, traditional holy places. Well, I think the key thing is that, you know, no traveller arrived in Jerusalem or or Palestine in general, let's say. But if we focus on Jerusalem, no traveller arrived in Jerusalem um, without a mental image of what the city should be and without a kind of... um, awe and a reverence towards the city. Um, So when they arrived uh, and actually saw uh, a city which was, you know, um, uh, an Ottoman city with with a large Muslim population, with um, people from from around the region coming, um, non-Protestant Christians, uh, Jews who were living a traditional religious life, um, and, and of course, you know, Muslim pilgrims and local Arab people who lived there. It was a shocking moment. It was a shocking moment for travellers. And uh, this is something that you get time and time again in their in their records. Uh, feelings of disappointment, of shock, of, um, you know, almost kind of sadness sometimes. Um, and this, you know, extended to the holy places and... Um, I mean, of course, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is to Christians, uh, to Christianity, 
for centuries has been the most sacred site uh, in in the Christian uh, geography. Uh, but it, when when Victorian travellers arrived there, they they found something that was totally alien to them. They found uh, forms of worship that were unknown to them. They they encountered pilgrims from Armenia, from Ethiopia, from Russia, from uh, other parts of the Arab world, um, and they could they could not even recognize them as Christians in some cases. Um, so these these attitudes um, resolved themselves in a, in a very negative feeling towards the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I think, you know, my argument is that it's this negative feeling uh, more than any kind of uh, biblical justifications that led them to reject that. Um, and of course, the garden tomb in Jerusalem, which is outside the walls, is, is quite well known as a late 19th century site that was identified by Protestants as an alternative crucifixion site. But there were others, um, which I discuss a little in my book. Um, but it was really a product of this kind of emotional, emotional feeling um, regarding the other holy sites, um, of course, there's the Haram al-Sharif, uh, the compound uh, which uh, contains the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. And towards this, travellers actually reacted much more favourably. And um, my argument is that this was a part of evangelicals turning their attention more towards sites that could be associated with the Old Testament and uh, sites which are, were more open and um, outside part of the landscape rather than and uh, built over areas that were already kind of monopolized by by non-Western churches or Palestinians or so on. Um, Of course, the the Haram al-Sharif is is an Islamic site, but uh, that was something that they were willing to overlook in in various ways. And uh, regarding the Jewish quarter and uh, the Western Wall, this really turned their attention onto onto what they thought the Jewish people should be and how the Jewish people, as they existed in Palestine and as they existed actually in Europe and elsewhere, um, were not the the idealized uh, heroic Israelites of the Old Testament of of Victorians' imaginations and so Victorians began to consider how they could be uh, kind of reconstructed as such And I want to ask you again, sort of a follow-up question about uh, this particular chapter Uh, how did British perception um, of Jerusalem and of the holy places that we're just talking about influence early Zionism Mm -hmm. and also Zionists as individuals? Uh, Well, as British kind of figures increasingly, uh, you know, turned turned towards the idea of Zionism as as a practice, as a, you know, concrete uh, thing that could be achieved rather than just uh, necessarily a more abstract idea of the return of the Jewish people to Palestine. Jerusalem begins to get sidelined in their their thoughts. And although it remains this kind of place of reverence and of of sacredness, um, yeah, it begins to, to become overlooked and 
and I'm, you know, we're going to discuss later on um, uh, Lawrence Oliphant, who was, you know, one of the uh, most influential of the the travellers insofar as formulating ideas around settler colonialism uh, are concerned. But um, when he was planning for a Jewish colony to be located in Palestine, he really overlooked Jerusalem and, and said, you know, the, the most important areas are, um, you know, east of the River Jordan, um, they're Haifa, other travellers said Nablus, you know, they begin to, to look for alternative sites for colonisation. Um, and and to leave Jerusalem, as it were, as, you know, a thing of the past and a kind of archaeological relic, while they, they want to develop other parts of Palestine through colonial methods. Um, and this is exactly the same attitude that Herzl takes when he visits uh, Palestine on the one, the one occasion that he did visit Palestine. Um, and he recorded extremely negative uh, attitudes towards Jerusalem in his diaries, which could have been lifted precisely word for word in translation of course uh from you know many many of these travelers accounts it's it's a it's the same attitude it's a parallel and it was actually leading towards the same the same conclusion which is that um settler colonization in palestine has to look elsewhere has to go to the countryside has to go to other parts of of palestine to uh to to kind of achieve achieve its aims and going to another parts of palestine moving mm. outside jerusalem i want to ask about uh uh you know what you you talk about in in chapter 4 um so in chapter 4 you you bring about the figures of uh, the british consul james finn and his mm. wife who are you know in their own right uh, they uh, you know they have their own history and a lot of material has been published about them. Yeah. Uh, but here you're talking about something which is often neglected or not necessarily really uh, the focus of previous historical studies. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about how they somehow set in motion the colonization of Palestine through the creation of a farm, which is known as uh, Kerem Avraham. Yes. Yeah, so Kerem Avraham, um, you know, those who've been to Jerusalem and know Jerusalem um, may be familiar with the, with the neighbourhood. It's um, a neighbourhood in West Jerusalem, um, not that far from the old city, but out, outside the walls. Um, but in the 19th century, in 1854 to be precise, um, uh, the Finns, uh, James and Elizabeth Finn, um, uh, founded a farm there for Jewish labourers as part of, um, well, they uh, they justified it at the time, and also in Finn's um, uh, kind of memoir uh, named "Stirring Times," as a uh, a response to a famine in uh, Palestine, which was particularly harsh on on the Jewish community there, because Jewish people didn't own land in Palestine uh, to the same extent that uh, you know the the indigenous Palestinian peasantry did, who were able to provide for themselves somewhat. Um, so. Uh, Regarding this uh, famine, they decided that, you know, the best form of relief um, was uh, to establish a farm for Jewish labourers. Um, it was originally a piece of land called Karam al-Khalil, 
um, and they translated that to Hebrew as Karem Avraham, which is probably the first example we have in Palestine of uh, an Arabic place name being replaced by a Hebrew place name, which obviously happened to a great extent after 1948. Um, they established this farm, uh, which operated for several years um, with, with local Jewish people from Jerusalem um, going to work in the farm by day and returning to their home by night. And it was very much kind of tightly under their control. So it was it was a model of a, a settler farm, I think. But uh, at the same time, there's important differences because it, it was under the control of these evangelicals who uh, tried to... to Yes, uh, make it fit into their vision for, for what it should be. But they saw this as, as the beginning of a process of reclaiming barren agricultural land and transforming Jewish people from um, kind of idle layabouts existing on charity payments into these, you know, muscular farmers um, who are returning to the soil of Palestine, um, which is, you know, precisely the same kind of discourse that the Zionist movement used 50 years later. Um, the farm uh, was was quite unsuccessful in its original incarnation, and uh, always just basically required more funding and donations than it, than it ever produced insofar as profit. Um, and it did close down for a number of years when uh, the Finns left Jerusalem, but it was then later restarted um, in the eighteen eighties by Elizabeth Finn, uh, James Finn having died about ten years before by that point, um, but Elizabeth. Finn, who was actually based in London, uh, she never went back to Palestine, but uh, she kind of managed the farm from afar as it restarted uh, for a number of decades under the, the control of a body called the Syrian Colonization Fund, um, which, uh, you know, tells you what you need to know about, uh, about its purpose. And this is really an organization that had received very little, um, very little scholarly attention, uh, particularly in English. So um, I, I was happy to kind of provide a history of the organization, which uh, went through different stages and had its ups and downs. And, and then finally um, uh, closed with uh, Elizabeth Finn's death in uh, 1920 or 21. Um, and that's when the pro the process of building over the land uh, began, and and so we have the neighbourhood in West Jerusalem today. Other than the neighbourhood in West Jerusalem that you mentioned, is there any other legacy that you can talk about uh, related to this uh, experiment? Um, well, the the original building still exists. Uh, it's actually a, a school now, I believe. Um, uh, I think the a legacy is is there in so far as it was really the first kind of model um, and the first occasion when um, this this kind of idea that uh, Jewish people could be farmers and could reclaim the land and uh, transform both the land and themselves. Um, was was put into practice and we do know that the zionist movement actually took an interest in operations there um and in the early 20th century uh some zionist filmmakers actually um you know visited the site and and filmed it for uh, a film that was then later shown in europe to um audiences 
who were who were interested in Zionism, sympathetic to Zionism. Um, so you know, it it was there. It's part of what I would call the prehistory of settler colonialism in Palestine, um, and. Yeah, differing in important ways uh, because, yeah, as I mentioned, the site was was not under Jewish control. It was not a kind of um, project of Jewish self-determination, which is, of course, another aspect of what Zionism is or claims to be. Um, so there were there were big differences. But uh, at the same time, it's it's one of those really fascinating precedents that I mentioned earlier on. Now, moving ahead uh, with your book, uh, the following chapters, five, six, and seven, are offering the readers different kind of stories, and all of them mm. fascinating. But let me start with the question of Nablus. So mm-hmm. we're moving uh, definitely uh, out of Jerusalem. We're moving north. Yeah. And uh, first of all, I was wondering uh, what did attract uh, Victorian travelers to Nablus? And also, if you Mm -hmm. can speak about the question of the uprising of 1856, and if you can give us a taste of uh, those events, their impact uh, over both the local population and British travelers. Sure. Yes. So um, Nablus, uh, you know, is is a fascinating city in Palestine, has a fascinating history throughout the 19th century uh, and has already been uh, discussed by historians like Pichello Dumani, um, who listeners may be familiar with his work. Um, but lacking from those accounts were, were, was, I think, was a sense of how Nablus was involved in this um, phenomenon of travel, um, which was called the Peaceful Crusade, I should add. I haven't mentioned that yet, um, of, uh, of Western travelers into Palestine. So Nablus uh, for sure featured in this phenomenon, and it was visited by many, many travelers who um, arrived in Palestine, went straight to Jerusalem, maybe Bethlehem, and then wanted to go northwards to uh, to see the Galilee, to see Nazareth and other kind of holy sites. Um, they The road ran along through it ran through Nablus and so you know very many travelers went went through there um, including missionaries um, and uh, you know other other kind of semi-official um, and official figures and it, it even had its own um, you know consular representation for the European states who were actually local local Palestinians but who were um, you know paid by by the consuls to represent the European states in Nablus um, so it was it was definitely a part of this this uh, wave of travel um, the uprising that you mentioned of 1856 was a really fascinating event that um, you know I, I came across in several different accounts. The first um, account I read of it was in the um, memoir of James Finn that I mentioned, Stirring Times. I then found it in several other books. Uh, and then when I started looking at the newspapers, I found that it was reported in, in many, many, um, you know, kind of uh, British news newspapers and these I found it so interesting that these events in Palestine were actually you know landing on people's kind of tables and so on throughout throughout the land uh, back back in back home in Britain um, and they were receiving news on these events um, so it's a really fascinating fascinating incident 
Um, the background is uh, the terms of matter reforms in the Ottoman Empire, um, which were occurring in the 1850s, which was a time of increasing European influence uh, across the Ottoman Empire. I won't go into a huge amount of depth on it now, but uh, suffice it to say that this led uh, you know, Muslim communities um, around the Ottoman Empire to feel somewhat um, uneasy, because, especially because Christians in the Ottoman Empire were, were seeming to gain privileges at, at Muslims' expense through the Tanzimat reforms. Um, the actual uprising itself um, was sparked by, uh, you know, an incident in which a missionary um, uh, discharged a pistol uh, and killed a, a local Nablus man as the missionary was passing through the city um, which then you know sparked rioting and then the missionary uh, whose name was Samuel Lyde was quickly taken in by the Nablus governor and, and protected his life was saved by the, the Nablus governor from the Abdul Hadi family which is still a, a prominent family in Nablus and so unfortunately the anger of the, the some of the people of Nablus fell on the small Christian community in the city so it took this kind of unfortunate and very tragic uh, communal communal character but uh, it really did show the kind of anxiety not only around the Tanzimat I think um, in general but also more specifically the in Palestine the increasing presence you know there was a missionary uh, institution in Nablus a missionary school which was destroyed as I mentioned there were these consular agents um, who were displaying the flags of European countries the flags were torn down and their houses were ransacked and so on uh, as well as a small number of, of local Nablus Christians were unfortunately killed in the violence. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a small incident, really, that lasted for, for only a day. Um, and there were much larger uh, examples of communal violence from the Eastern Mediterranean at this time. But I felt that it was a really, really uh, fascinating, fascinating um, sequence of events that, again, had, hadn't received any attention in the academia. And I also go into um, what I found particularly interesting was the after aftermath of the uprising and uh, what happened to Lyde afterwards and uh, how compensation was paid to uh, the family of the man the man who whose Lyde pistol killed and uh, also the local Christians and so on and, and how the British um, consul Finn and his uh, equivalent in Beirut as well who was also involved managed very sneakily to um, to get the most uh, for them out of the situation. So it's a, it's a really interesting story. And sort of uh, sticking around Nablus, mm. then you, you're going to talk about uh, one of the most fascinating uh, uh, stories, at least for me, that are in the book. And you bring to the readers the nearly, I would say, incredible story yes. of the Samaritans as a group of people uh, for which even nowadays we don't really know much about and there's not really a lot of literature about them. Certainly mm -hmm. there's a lot of fascinations. But then you focus on a specific individual, Yakub al-Shabi. And yes. I was wondering, you know, obviously if you can talk about uh, both the Samaritans and Yakub, mm -hmm. but why were British travelers fascinated by the Samaritans in the first place? Yes. And also what did uh, Yakub do 
for his community. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you found it interesting. I, I was really fascinated as well, and actually challenged a lot of my expectations that I had uh, when I started doing the research. Uh, so, of course, the Samaritans uh, they lived on um, their their holy mountain, um, Mount Gerizim or Jabal Jerzim, which is adjacent to Nablus, um, and they had lived there for you know thousands of years um, as a, you know an indigenous community to Palestine who um, practice a faith um, which in some ways has has some similarities with uh, you know ancient ancient Judaism but also differs in important respects for example seeing Nablus as their holy city rather than Jerusalem um, and by the 19th century by the middle of the 19th century the community only numbered about 150 people and uh, you know Victorians love to kind of predict their demise and see them it almost in the similar way to um, how uh, settlers in North America saw Native Americans at the time, you know, this kind of noble race who are on the verge of, uh, of extinction and disappearing and we need to go and study them and we need to, to take their photographs and we need to uh, <laughs> acquire their objects and their belongings for our collections. Um, so there, there was a huge interest in the Samaritans and, and many, uh, many of these Victorian travellers, I mean, really their, their journeys were incomplete without a visit to Nablus and specifically without a visit to the Samaritan community. So, uh, you know, it was a it was a huge draw for for Westerners, the fact that the Samaritans were in Nablus, and another reason why why people wanted to visit that city. Um, now, Yaqub, uh, as you mentioned, um, was really a figure who uh, you know benefited from this interest, and uh, he managed to um, gain quite a kind of notorious reputation for himself out of this uh, out of this interest. So he was born in about eighteen twenty nine. And um, again, like the uprising that I mentioned, I began finding mentions of him in different travellers' books. And now that's quite unusual, because in most of these Orientalist books, you know, it's very rare that uh, they'll actually mention a Palestinian by name. Um, And uh, still less kind of describe them and, uh, you know... Give, give details of their life and, and their characteristics and so on. Because, you know, part of Orientalism is really seeing, you know, all of these, all of these people as the same and unindividuated and on, only the, the, the Westerners have characters and so on. So it was very unusual to find mentions of this uh, Samaritan person, uh, you know, time and time again. And then I even found, you know, to my almost astonishment that there was a, a book, uh, a short pamphlet, which was actually his autobiography that was published in the 1850s, um, which was, gives a really fascinating story of, of his life up until that point. Um, he began to, to come into contact with um, travellers in the 1840s um, when he was, you know, a, a child um, and began to kind of show some of these Victorian travellers around Nablus and also, um, which became a defining feature of his life, promise, promise, made promises to them that he could help them obtain Samaritan artefacts, um, you know, particularly the Samaritan holy texts for Western collections, um, which, you know, some of these travellers wanted to go to Palestine and, and take these things back as souvenirs almost. 
So he really um, used their interest in, in his community to his advantage and began profiting from these. And there still are objects which went through his hands, which are in British and European collections. You know, and, and we can see these in the same way that, for example, we see the Benin bronzes or the, the Rosetta Stone. There's currently a you know, discussion around that, these items that um, you know, are in, in Western collections that different communities want to take back. And um, <coughs> so, yes, Yakub, he, um, he helped travellers acquire some of these items. In the 1850s, he actually travelled himself to Britain and Ireland and uh, really kind of made uh, quite a lot of controversy. Wherever he went, controversy seemed to follow him. He was really um, a kind of troublemaker in some respects. <coughs> and... Um, yeah, he he later returned to Britain um, several more times, I think four more times, which I found really fascinating. You know, it wasn't just a one-way exchange. Obviously, there was a, a vastly larger number of, of travellers coming to Palestine, but some Palestinians did also go back to, um, you know, the imperial core, let's say, um, and make visits there. And Yaqub was one of those. Um, and he continued to show travellers around Palestine in his later life. He went through various um, periods of kind of excommunication and exile from the rest of the Samaritans when they grew fed up with, with what he was doing. The fact that he was taking these artefacts and getting rid of their material heritage and also presenting himself as... Um, the prince of the Samaritans, he was once described as, even though he didn't have such a formal position, and he took it upon himself to speak for the community without actually being being having the right to do so. Um, so yes, he's really a fascinating character, and um, you know, I was able to trace his life through these uh, sources. Um, including, as I mentioned, his his very interesting autobiography, and um, again uh, newspaper reports, and you know various appearances of his in different texts and so on, until he died in the eighteen eighties. And I think that's just a. I'm I'm sure there's many other examples, but this was just one I was able to find of a Palestinian person whose life was deeply, deeply shaped by this interest in in the Holy Land and um, really was a, a product of this period of travel and this, this Victorian fascination with Palestine. What, what I found fascinating about him is that, in a sense, he willingly accepted the idea of being an object. Uh, mm. And so he, he actually profited from it. So I, I guess he used uh, uh, Orientalism to his own advantage, right? Yes, yeah, for sure, for sure, absolutely. And, um, you know, there was a, a nice anecdote that perfectly illustrates that where, um, you know, some I think some travellers uh, once, uh, you know, some of these evangelical minded travellers asked him if he would convert to Christianity. And he told them, by, by staying a Samaritan, I'm actually more interesting for you, for you people. So, you know, he was he was quite self aware and uh, a kind of um, 
canny, canny dealer, I think, although uh, he, he made himself a very large number of enemies. And uh, yeah, towards the end of his life, um, British travellers really turned against him because uh, they, they saw him as a kind of corrupted individual, you know, this this Oriental who is, oh, you know, he's he's trying to, to enrich himself, he's trying to do capitalism, but only, only, only we can do that, really. Um, and this guy's just a kind of fraud. But they, the same people who had the those opinions of him were the ones who created him because their interest in in what he had to offer uh, in by way of uh, stolen basically artifacts from the Samaritans uh, was what made him into uh, into this kind of larger than life figure that he was. Let me move to your final chapter. Um, this is a very interesting chapter, and it made me think about uh, a number of questions. So I want to just break it down. And um, in this chapter, you talk about the man who we can say prepared to an extent the blueprint for colonization, mm-hmm. Lawrence Oliphant, who is also the author of a famous book, The Land of Gilead. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, so Oliphant was, uh, you know, d- descended from um, a Scottish kind of aristocratic family. Um, he had a, a hugely interesting life. Uh, he's There's already been, you know, multiple uh, biographies of him. I didn't want to cover his life in a great deal of detail um, until the last few years of his life, which was when he became really interested in Palestine. Um, but I did want to point out something that I think uh, has really been discussed um, in relation to his his um, role in in Zionism, Zionism's early history, his recognised role, I should say, because uh, you know the Zionist movement has always paid tribute to him. Um, but the fact that he was you know deeply ingrained within the British colonial system. And he had actually been a governor in uh, Quebec in the 1850s. Uh, so in, a, in another settler colony um, in which, you know, he pursued policies of assimilation and annihilation of the First Nations people who were there, which I found was, you know, a, a, a really significant part of his later uh, plans for Palestine which had just not not been discussed in relation to to his activities later on uh but he yeah as i said he met, he led a very very colorful life he was you know a world traveler he was a diplomat he was a spy kind of involved in espionage and so on for for the british um went all over the place from nepal and russia and china and uh, and so on and uh, he was a member of parliament he was a prominent novelist he was involved in this um, very strange religious cult uh, he and his wife um, which they then kind of um, exported to Palestine in, in, in his final years as well um, but uh, yeah uh, so a, a kind of well-known figure I think for, for those who know about um, the, the development of Zionism early Zionism and yet one who I thought uh, his his writings on Palestine, as you mentioned, the land of Gilead, and his plans for Palestine had not really been sufficiently explored through a lens of a settler colonial analysis. One point I found very interesting is that, in general, uh, the Oliphants as a couple, he and his mm-hmm. wife uh, Alice, uh, were very close to um, the uh, Druze community. In fact, yes. were among the few non-Druze to have a very close relationship with them. 
But at the same time, as you talk about in the book, Oliphant essentially advocated uh, what we call now today the ethnic cleansing of the Bedouins. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, to bring to bring things up to Oliphant's interested in Palestine, he he arrived in Palestine in at the end of the eighteen seventies, um, and travelled you know quite extensively around. Uh, this is when he wrote his his book, The Land of Gilead, which contains a remarkably detailed plan for a, a Jewish colony. Um, he went to Palestine, uh, what what he called Western Palestine, what we would call you know present day the Palestine, um, Palestinian territories in Israel, whatever. Um, and he realized that the area was essentially, um, you know, it was too highly populated already for, for a, you know, it wasn't an empty land. It was already populated by the, the Palestinian Felahin, the peasantry, it was already farmed by them. There was only going to be a limited amount of, of room for movement for any any settlers. He also uh, went to the Jewish community in uh, Jerusalem and, and found that they were actually not interested in, in his ideas at all. So um, he then crossed over the, the River Jordan uh, into present-day Jordan and um, identified a very large area of land, um, which would, would include present-day Amman and Salt and other Jordanian cities. Uh, where he believed a, a colony, an agricultural colony, could be founded. Um, and he chose this area because it was less less uh, inhabited. But as you mentioned, uh, you know, there were Bedouin tribes in the area. And he recommended, to, in his words, to use a firm hand against the Arabs and, you know, explicitly demanded that they be excluded from the area and, and driven out by force. Um, so, you know, I identified this as, as a key moment in really, you know, an early uh, advocation of ethnic cleansing. He then left Palestine. He tried to convince the Sultan Abdul Hamid in, in Istanbul of his plans, which failed. Um, again, like Herzl did 20 years later, very close parallel. Um, went to Europe and, and made strong connections with the Zionist movement. Uh, and then he returned to Palestine for the last few years of his life and, um, you know, settled near Haifa with his wife, Alice, and with other followers uh, who who came from Britain, who were part of his kind of mystical circle. Um, and they lived in Haifa for a while. Then they lived in a, a Druze village close by. And as you mentioned, he did... Um, he did cultivate this quite strong relationship with the, the Druze community, um, including building his house there. And I, he tried to exert a form of control and, uh, you know, keep them through various means uh, under his influence, which is quite interesting. But his relationship with the Druze uh, also kind of prefigures the Zionist movement's relationship with the Druze and the state of Israel's relationship with them in that they tried to uh, to co-opt the Druze uh, um, as, as into their kind of plans. Um, obviously not something that all, all Druze agree with and, and many, many disagree. But uh, his house, you know, remains in, in the village uh, and it's actually like a museum to, uh, to Druze soldiers who served in the Israeli Defense Forces today. So it's one of the many ways in which Oliphant continues to uh, make his presence felt in, uh, in Palestine. 
And this is exactly what I wanted to ask you because mm. uh, Oliphant is actually a household name in Israel. And so I was wondering why is yeah. that? And, uh, you know, what is that trigger, that kind of connection between Oliphant and modern day Israel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, he is. He's a well-known figure. Um, he there's streets named after him. There, you know, there's books and, and films that he features in. Uh, there's been exhibitions about him in museums and so on. Um, so you know, I I ended my book with the chapter on him because I think that's. The the elephant's intervention in Palestine kind of marks the highest point of uh, of this British involvement in and planning for settler colonization. It's really the product of of the whole nineteenth century, leading up to what we have finally is a very. Um, uh, concrete and explicit and detailed plan for colonization that the Oliphant produced in the land of Gilead. And then he took it a step further by actually working very closely with early Zionist settlers and visiting their settlements in these, uh, the early settlements like Rishon Lezion um, and, uh, you know, other early Zionist settlements in, in northern Palestine. So actually forming that relationship, directly influencing them. And I think that is is where his influence lies, in that here we have a non-Jewish uh, British figure who, uh, you know, exerted a huge influence and actually advocated policies that we see Israel continuing to follow until after the 1967 war. You know, he was a strong advocate of, uh, uh, you know, settler colonization in the Golan Heights, for example. And, uh, you know, this is this is what happened after 1967. And there's a street named after Oliphant in a settlement in the Golan Heights. Uh, you know, he advocated the same about the Jordan Valley. Uh, he advocated the use of, um, you know, local Arab people as a kind of captive labor force. Uh, and uh, you know it's it's really a huge amount of um, of parallels that we can see there. Even his secretary um, Naftali Hertz Imber was the the author of the the Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem, um, and and he wrote that while he was working for Oliphant. So you know it's it's really a, a huge number of parallels and uh, really the kind of place where Oliphant is the place where the British development of these ideas comes to an end and then from then on it is you know the the jewish led zionist movement takes over and picks up his ideas and goes forward with them you know up to and including ethnic cleansing of palestine in 1948 and beyond and this leads me to my final question uh you say that eventually the fate of Palestine was sealed the moment these British evangelicals mm. pondered the prospect of uh, settler colonization, which also means the Ottomans had to go as uh, sort of mm. those that administered the land. But what about the local Palestinians? Yeah, um, the, I think the point that I wanted to make is, you know, by saying that, that Palestine's fate is sealed is really to 
to begin the story earlier and and to say you know we need to to look beyond 1917 we can't begin with the Balfour Declaration the story doesn't begin with the Balfour Declaration it doesn't begin with the British conquest or occupation of Jerusalem and of Palestine you know it goes back further um, not only were the social ideas formed but also the concrete plans for colonization were formed um, Regarding the Palestinians, uh, of course, this is something that, you know, not all travellers advocated for. Not all travellers advocated for their ethnic cleansing, as I've said. You know, Edward Robinson, for the beginning of the period I look at, which is, you know, roughly about 50 years from between Robinson's journey to Palestine to Oliphant's journey, um, you know, Robinson was kind of fond of Palestinians and, uh, you know, formed formed close relationships and, and gives all of these touching, um, you know, interesting descriptions of them. Um, but over those years, over those 50 years, there was a growing feeling that, you know, it was Palestine's destiny to be occupied by Britain. It was Britain's role to uh, help the, the restoration of the Jewish people, which began as a kind of um, religious idea, but then developed more into a kind of political idea than that this would be something good for the British Empire. This would mean security for Egypt, which, you know, Britain came to occupy in the 1880s, mean security for India with the route of the Suez Canal. And, uh, you know, it was it would even be, um, you know, travelers associated with the Palestine Exploration Fund as well, saying, you know, it would be a, a source of food and, and of food exports for Britain, for the British Empire. Uh, if it was, you know, colonized by a Jewish population. Uh, So these ideas became extremely normalized before 1917, extremely strongly normalized. And, you know, it was it was rare to find a voice that was actually sticking up for for Palestinians by by the end of that period. I did cite one figure, uh, George Adam Smith, who is, you know, an an evangelical who um, wrote a pamphlet in 1918 after the occupation of Palestine, saying you know, it's great that the Ottomans have gone, but we have a problem now because, you know, the the Jewish people are not the only people who lay claim to Palestine. The local people do. They have nowhere else to go. It's their ancestral land. And, you know, Britain should uh, should do right by them, Um, which is obviously words that went unheeded. This was uh, Gabriel Polly, author of Palestine in the Victorian Age. Colonial Encounters in the Holy Land, published in 2022 by I.B. Tories. Gabriel, thank you so much. Thank you.